verses 7 through 11, and then verse 30 through 33, Ezekiel 33. Please stand with me. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you shall say, If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? And then verse 30 through 33. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of your houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely I will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we are grateful that you have provided your revelation for us in your word so that we might know you. And that as we know you, we might know of your grace and your mercy and your judgment. And so, Father, we pray that now as we hear from your word, we pray that you would give us hearts to receive it, give us minds to understand, give us ears to hear. And, Father, we pray that you would give uh, Nick the ability to communicate faithfully your word so that we might receive it as such and that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Evergreen. I'm not sure when I'm going to start mixing up my introduction. It just feels so natural just to say good morning. I don't even have to think about it. Um, if you would just turn with me in your Bibles to Mark. We are already in chapter four. And where we left off last time, uh, at least in the text-wise, at the very end of chapter three, we were seeing that while everyone, while Jesus was dealing with so many different rejections and rejections coming from all sorts of different corners, rejection from his family who knew him, who raised him, rejecting him in the sense of not wanting to follow after him, but thinking he'd lost his mind, rejection of the Pharisees who seemed to have grasped exactly who he was. Jesus is dealing with rejection here, but amazingly, in chapter 4, Jesus doesn't seem surprised at all by this rejection. 
And when we go into looking at Jesus and why he is not surprised, part of it comes from the hope that he has. He had just ended that rejection set, uh, section in verse 35, looking at those in verse 34 and 35, looking at those around him and saying that those who sat around him, listening to his word, those who are doing the will of God and listening and following after Jesus, those are his true family. And Jesus really start, sets up this contrast between those who are on the inside, who are following after him and the privileges that they get, and contrasting that with those who are on the outside, who for whatever reason reject him. And Jesus is going to reveal that the reason is not very surprising. Let's read God's holy, inerrant words, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. I'll be reading from chapter, uh, verse 1 to verse 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. Soil. And immediately, it's... Sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. But other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Now, just pause for a second here before we proceed to Jesus' explanation. Do you guys get it? Do you guys, can you understand what's going on? If the answer is no, that's probably the right answer because that's what we see in the disciples' response. That's why in verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you and has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan is immediately comes up and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the soil are the ones who, who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would grant us this privilege, that we would seek to follow Jesus, listening closely to his words from this text, and that your Holy Spirit would give us the eyes and the ears to understand these things, that we might be more faithful to you and might have our salvation more firmly rooted in God and his sovereignty and his ability to save us. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's multiple reasons for preaching in any particular way. I think one way that's really helpful, and I think I mentioned this the last time, the last sermon, which is when we are hearing a sermon, there should be some sort of element that teaches us how to read our Bibles better. That hopefully, and you can do the same thing at home, that you can be reading the scriptures, that you can see how various scriptures inform the text you're reading, and not just ever reading just one Bible verse, but trying to read things within context to figure out what they mean, and then seeking to apply it to your own heart. Not thinking that you're going to earn God's favor by doing that, but just wanting to be faithful, wanting to look more like Christ. That's always the goal. And I think one of the ways we can approach this goal and something this is besides the text, actually the point of this text, but is something really necessary, which is to, tell, to think about what a parable is. There have been many different interpretations of what a parable is throughout church history. Typically, they have been looked at as allegories for probably about a thousand years. People would read these parables and they would get off the rails pretty quickly. They would see these one-to-one -one correlations between different details in the story and try to correlate them to something of our experience. One common one is Luke 15, 11 through 32, the parable of the prodigal son. They assume that first they would interpret, well, God the father, the father whose son ran away, well, that's God. The prodigal stands for any sinner running away from God, and the older brother for the, the hard-hearted Pharisee. So far, so good. All those things seem to be true in the text. However, they would keep going on. The correspondences would keep being extended to absolutely every detail in the text. The ring which the father gave the prodigal son was said to represent Christian baptism. The banquet was associated with the Lord's Supper. The robe which the newly returned son was to reflect immortality. The shoes, God's preparation for the journey to heaven. 
and so on and so forth. They would just look at every single detail of the parable and try to figure out what it corresponded to. And most of, most of the time, it was something that would not have made sense to the original audience. That's really the key to this. However, some people have went into the opposite direction. And this includes some evangelical biblical scholars that I love and different pastors that I've loved to listen to. And the point here, what they would say, is that when you're looking at a parable, you're looking at an illustration, a story, meant to clarify a particular point. And every parable is said to have only one point. And while this is held by many different conservative Bible-believing scholars today, the idea actually came about by a guy, a, a German liberal theologian named Adolf Jülich or Dulliker, I'm totally butchering his names. I don't speak German. Um, but he was trying, he was intent on saying that every parable only had one point, and the point was to clarify. However, we run into some problems here when Jesus explains the purpose of parables in verse 10, verses 10 through 13. First of all, when he's alone, the disciples don't understand it. It's not that they don't understand any particular point, and as we keep reading through different parables in the biblical accounts, we'll see that even the Pharisees will understand some of the points that Jesus is making. But however, Jesus says in verse 11 that to them, to the inner circle, they are given the secret of the kingdom. And he contrasts what they've been given with those on the outside where everything is in parables. And then Jesus does something in his interpretation that sounds at least somewhat similar to the early church and to the medieval church, really, which is he starts interpreting various elements of it kind of allegorically. He says that the birds represents Satan, that the different types of soils represent the, the different types of people, and then also the details and the different things that are going on with the thorn bush representing the different things that threaten desires that we have that threaten to choke out the word or the rocky soil. All these things have some sort of parallel. So all this is to say that when you're reading your Bible, you can go in two different directions that are equally wrong. You can go in the direction of saying that all the parables only make one point when it seems like Jesus is one of the only parables, this in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Jesus actually gives an interpretation and actually contradicts the idea that there's only one point. It contradicts the fact that there is not any sort of allegorical elements in here. And what we have to do is we have to restrict ourselves to how Jesus interprets the parables. And this will become clear. I have all the whole book of Mark to explain how Jesus is, teaches parables, so I don't have to do it all right now. But I think the important thing in all this is to say that the way he interprets it here, saying that there are at least some allegorical elements, some elements which Jesus is saying something like a seed being sown 
And you need to have that decoded, interpreted by Jesus to say that the seed is the word. There are some elements in there. And we know that for sure because of verse 13, where he said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus is saying, and he's about to provide an interpretation that's going to provide a route for how we are to interpret all of his parables. And this is so important because of how often Jesus teaches in parables. We're going to push a pause on that idea, though, because we don't need to keep going there. Jesus is going to teach in parables next week, and he's going to do it several times later that we can dive into that further. But what's the point of what he's trying to make? What's Jesus trying to do? He is trying to make a point, but it's a point that he clarifies for his disciples. And this includes not just the 12 that are sitting around him, the 12 that he's called out, but he actually even includes all the people that were previously sitting around him. He includes them with the 12 in verse 10. What Jesus is doing here is he's explaining why people are rejecting him. He's explaining, if you think about it this way, think about why, if, the, if God is in control, he's sovereign over absolutely everything, and he calls all sinners to come to him, why do not all come? Why do so many people reject Jesus Christ? You know, rejection causes us all to pause and to question things. If you're in a relationship and you're broken up with, there's probably a lot of emotions there that are clouding your vision. And you start thinking, well, is it something about me? Am I not lovable? But did I do something wrong? And sometimes those conversations with ourselves can be fruitful. And other times the answers that we come up with can be pretty bad. That's why I think it might be more helpful just to try to peel back the emotional layer for a second to be considering a salesman. That if a salesman comes and pitches to you a mattress that you should buy, and if you do not accept that offer, the reason could be one of three reasons. It could be that the salesman has not done a good job. He has not adequately explained why you, the customer, needs the mattress, and you can fill it in with anything you want. It could be also, though, that the product itself is bad. You, why would you want to buy not a good mattress? A bad mattress is another way of saying that. And lastly, it could just, it might not be the salesman and it might not be the fact that, you know, your explanatory powers were ill-equipped or the product you're trying to sell is bad. But also, unlike our culture says, the customer's not always right. Sometimes the reason why people don't buy the mattress is because they don't get, have a firm grasp about why that is so valuable, why they need it, even if they actually do. And while a mattress is a pretty silly example and no one really needs a mattress. Everyone needs salvation. 
for everyone, all are sinners, all stand before God condemned rightly, and God will punish every sinner, and he offers truly to all salvation. So let's first, let's just go through some deduction here. Is the problem in the product? Let's not assume anything. Well, first, let's look at verse 4 and verse, uh, verses, sorry, verses 1 through 2, where Jesus goes beside the sea, and he's preaching to a very large crowd, a very large crowd that we're going to figure out is very diverse in the people who are in attendance. And he calls all to listen to what he says in verse 3. And he ends his parable when he explains it in verse 9 with saying, he who has ears to hear, and the ESV says, let him hear. Both times at the very beginning of the parable in verse 3 and the very end of the parable in verse 9, this is not just a ask. It's not a request. That's what a salesman does. A salesman just says, hey, I would like you to consider this product. That's not what Jesus does. So it's my allegory, if you will, is pretty trite by comparison. The Lord Jesus Christ commands all sinners to listen to what he is saying. And what marks the difference between the outsiders and the insiders is not the level of understanding, actually, at first. It's the privilege that they have. They've been given the privilege of the secret. They did not actually understand what he said at first, but they had to have it explained to them. That's the impact. And we might be wondering here, if God is really in control, does he really freely offer salvation to every sinner that would turn to him? Well, yes. Many places in Scripture say this, but I think the one that's most apparent and the one that, I keep coming, the one that keeps coming to my mind is Isaiah chapter 55, where Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2 tells all who thirst to come to him, all who are hungry to come and find their nutrition, find their salvation in God and God alone. And in verse 9, he tells them, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Is this optional? Like if, if you're a sinner and you come to God and you are asking for forgiveness, will God say no? The reason verse 9 ends with in Isaiah chapter 55 says, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The reason why God's word, God will abundantly pardon is because God, the nature of him himself, he is a forgiving God. As we just read, the question then comes again. Ezekiel was set up and was given the task to preach to Israel, to warn them that God will punish their sin, a warning that every human being has. And the reason why he gives Ezekiel this task is he tells them that he has a job to do, to warn, to warn people. And in that explanation in verses 7 through 11 of Ezekiel 33, 
we see that the task that was given to the watchman who's sitting looking out for danger is not to force people to recognize what he's saying. Ezekiel does not have that power. His task is to proclaim that there is danger. Danger for every sinner who does not turn. And if Ezekiel keeps his end, if he actually warns people of their danger, their blood is not on his hands. That's his job. And God even says at the very end in verse 11, he calls the people and he says, I don't get any pleasure from judging the wicked. God's offer is a free offer. An offer of grace to every sinner who thirsts after righteousness sake every sinner that would turn to god he will pardon and he doesn't get any pleasure out of punishing the wicked however after saying all of that by the end of the chapter in ezekiel 33 what do we see we see a group of people listening to the prophet ezekiel saying wow come listen it's it's like a concert we'll hear this good speaker this good conference speaker Man, that was entertaining. Let's go home, not change anything. And the question is, is if that's the product that's being offered, that it's God's word that we are told in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, that God's word goes out and he will cause it to return to him, not empty, but accomplishing exactly that which he set it out for. And so I don't just have, you don't have the Nick prayer phrase of that. Verse 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now here we have quite the paradox. God calls sinners to repent. He tells them of the free offer of his grace to all those that would turn to him. And he even says that every time his word goes out into the world, whether it be through the prophet Ezekiel, or as Jesus here in this text, he pictures himself as the one who's sowing God's word. Why, when the sower throws out over, when he throws his seed, which we're told in verse 14 is the very word of God. How come when the preacher, even now, right now, what I'm doing is I'm taking the seed of God's word and I'm seeking to throw it as far as I can over absolutely every individual here. The problem's not, the problem's not in the product, not in the seed that I'm holding, God's word. The problem resides in human hearts. If you're keeping track, that's point two here, that The problem resides in the human heart. I think it's helpful just to skip ahead to look at his explanation. We'll look at his further, that really hard phrase in verse 12 of Jesus's. But as he's explaining it, the problem is in the customer. Verses 14 through 20. What we have here and what we're told by Jesus himself is he says that each of these soils represents different kinds of people. 
The same word of God, the same truth that Jesus Christ died for sinners and is risen. Now I'm being a little anachronistic. The word of God in our text is just the kingdom of God that is fulfilled, that the Messiah has come. That good news has come to the people. Jesus is throwing out among the crowd. The problem is not found in the seed, but it's found in where it falls. The problem is, is that every single person in here is a sinner who by nature rejects the word of God. And when we find that the seed of God's word falls upon our hearts, different types of people respond differently. The reason why Jesus was not surprised at his rejection is because he knew his audience. He knew who he was speaking to. He knew that some, like the Pharisees, the word would roll right off their back. It's kind of like a duck that gets into the water. And you can pour water on it and the the water just rolls right off. We might preach, I might be throwing the seed of God's word, but some of our hearts are hardened. And like the Pharisees, this is not some random occurrence. We are like Pharaoh, God hardens our hearts, and yet we are hardening our own hearts at the same time. That the reason why people just despise God's word and it just rolls off them is because I kind of give it away there. Because they despise God's word. When they see the truthfulness of it, they don't embrace it. They don't accept it. They instead hate it. And the devil is said to take away the word. Other people that the seed of God's word might fall upon might be here rocky soil that receive it with great joy at first. And think for just a moment. This is not, Jesus is not saying that just because you respond with joy to the gospel, that means that it's invalid. No, that's not his point. His point is not the joy necessarily. That's the outward appearance. Someone accepts the gospel, they profess their faith, and they're happy. The problem is the depth of the soil. Since there's rocks in it, It's very shallow soil. The roots, the acceptance does not grow very deep. And actually, as soon as any trials come up, the sun is said to have scorched it, kill it. And that sun that's scorching is tribulation and persecution. If some people will not listen to the gospel because they hate the good news, They don't like the offer that tells them that they are sinners before God's sight, and they don't want to hear the news that God, they need him to save them. Other people do not reject or do not listen to the gospel because they'll only accept a promise of an easygoing life. You know, some people hear the gospel and it's presented as God wants you to have a wonderful life, a happy life. And people buy into that and say, well, so do I. I want to have a happy life, carefree, no problems. But the problem with that is, is that the Christian life, following Jesus Christ, will make us uncomfortable. It will bring about persecution. We will be seen as different, as others, 
who are kind of outside the realms of normalcy. And what do we do when we see that someone's not like us? If you're in a school, like this is the typical middle school situation, if you have the one awkward kid who's different from everyone else, that's the person who's going to get picked on. And the same thing is true of Christians. If our Savior received persecution and he never did anything wrong, how much more so do you think you will receive persecution if you follow him? Some people do not listen to the gospel because in their hearts they hate God. Others do not listen to the gospel because they will only accept the promise of an easy life. Other people will not accept the gospel, will not listen to it or heed Jesus' words because they're distracted. Distracted by lesser things, lesser desires. Verse 19 describes the thorns, and Jesus has thrown his seed. And this, by the way, is not an ancient Near Eastern uh, typical farming process. This would have sounded weird as a farming technique, even to the ancient Near Eastern audiences. People don't hold their seed and say, I'm going to walk down the road and start just chucking it everywhere. No. But when you have this silly picture of him throwing it all over, some of the seed falls into a thorn bush. The problem isn't necessarily that they don't understand the gospel that there's not depth of soil, depth of understanding. But the problem is, is they desire other things more. They desire the cares of this world. When it comes to following Jesus, and maybe not working on Sundays, when, if we are convinced that God's word teaches us that we are to worship him one day in seven, and to set up our, that day for worship, and we're offered a job that promises us a much higher salary, but you have to work seven days a week. You have an option in front of you. You can either go for the cares of this world or obedience to God. This happens in so many different sectors of life. We can be deceived by the riches of this life. Notice we live in a rich country. If anything, if the type of soil is going to land anywhere, it's probably going to be here. We have more privileges and more riches than pretty much any other time, any other place on earth has ever had. We have to be very careful because what sin promises us is pleasure and happiness. Kind of like drugs. Promises us a, a high that will make us feel really good. And guess what? It delivers. However, what it delivers on is an imitation of the reality. Drugs don't offer long-lasting, real happiness. It gives you an illusion of it, an illusion of it that's so fleeting that it's gone before you're done. And before you know it, you've pursued this path. You've invested your life, and instead you've forsaken the promises of God, and instead you pursue after the pleasures of this life. And guess what? Later on, you feel that you're entrapped by your sin. You feel 
no longer the desires are driving you towards it, but instead you feel the choking of it. That it's choked the life out of God's word and now you are ensnared. We have to be wary of that. The last kind of soil, the last one, the only one that produces fruit, and that's really important, the only one that produces fruit is the good soil. And that's defined as those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. And these lines, the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, you can go maybe too far into this, trying to interpret every last detail and fall into the same error that the medieval church fell into. We can just say here that people, good soil, what that looks like is it looks like people who produce the fruit of good works. That those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have experienced the life-transforming power of that gospel, they have a changed life. And there's a variety of different productiveness that's found in the people of God. But the thing that distinguishes God's people, the people who have accepted God's word and have let the, the roots of God's word go deep into your own heart, it is those who show fruit. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I've been actually meaning to read this, and so much of God's Word, especially Ephesians, is so applicable. Next time, we will go into and looking at how it makes sense right now that the free offer of the gospel, the reason why this is not working, the reason why people reject Jesus is because human sinful hearts don't want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one explanation. Next week, we're going to get into the the harder issue. The issue that ultimately everything that happens happens according to God's plans, according to God's purposes in the world. That's the other reason why people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see these two things side by side together in Ephesians chapter 2. And I do want you to look on with me. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right there, that's people who are the hard ground. Actually, let's not overextend that analogy. This is the whole world. Verse 3, among them we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The goodness of God is not the source of why people end up in hell, that God arbitrarily picks some and chooses others, and it has there's no justice involved. No. The sole reason that's found in us rejecting Christ is found in our sin. God is sovereign, yes, but he's not so- he is sovereign over everything in such a way that he is not the author 
of evil. When we hear of God's sovereignty, we tend to think, well, does that make us that we are choosing to sin because God is causing it in us to choose to sin? The answer here is no. The reason why people end up going to hell is because of the justice of God, that he rightly punishes every sinner. And the amazing thing is not how many people actually reject Jesus Christ. The amazing thing is if we're all sinners, if we've all turned away, why is there anyone who's good soil? Why is there anyone that pursues after God? And the answer is found in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And in verse 8, he clarifies this, that this by grace you have been saved through faith. What does that look like? It's, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result, result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created for, in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good fruit, being a heart that has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, that's a result of God's work in your life. And he has not just appointed you to believe in him at one point in the far past or to even just accept him with joy at this moment. The faith that God gives to people, the grace that he sends into a human life is one which causes them not only to believe, but the Holy Spirit takes God's word and lets the roots grow deep, removing the rocks, getting rid of the thorns, and causing that tree to produce fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word that you have shown us that the reason why we reject the Lord Jesus Christ is not because God is just mean or is arbitrarily picking and choosing. Lord, the reason why people reject the Lord Jesus Christ is because the sin that resides in their own heart. We are so thankful. We, we admit that we depend fully upon you and you alone to save us. That the only thing we bring to the table is our sin apart from Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness of your word, and that if we see and sense that your Holy Spirit is pulling on our hearts, calling on our lives, that we would turn from our sins and trust in God, knowing that this is his work in our life. Lord, we love you and we praise your name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's at this point in the, in the service where we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper together.
And I'm going to go ahead and invite all the elders to come up. I'm going to read the words of institution, because the reason why we practice this, the reason why we do the Lord's Supper is not because this is an idea of our own invention. This is not our idea of how we want to and desire to get close to God. No, the reason why we do this is because for we receive